0: We're going to be reading from Galatians chapter 5 this morning, two readings, Galatians 5 verse 1 and Galatians 5:13 to 26. If you have your Bibles, feel free to turn with me and if not then uh, feel free to read from the screen. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Verse 13, you, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of sinful nature. those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. This is God's word.
1: Thank you, John and Corey and Lynn and our worship team. I think I blew my voice out singing this morning. Um, what a great opportunity that we have to gather together and to sing together. Um, it's awesome. You now we've got lots of people uh, at Breakforth this weekend, a conference that uh, takes place down at uh, Shaw Conference Centre. heard a great little story uh, just this morning. Um, some of you may have seen an email that I sent out yesterday just asking uh, if anybody was interested. There were a couple of free tickets floating around for a worship concert last night um, unbeknownst to me, um, Cheryl Burick um, uh, it was back at the end of December. She hadn't signed up for Breakforth, but it was just in her spirit that God had said, you're going to be able to go somehow. And, uh, and so yesterday she was kind of praying going, okay, God Breakforth is like halfway through and I still haven't gone. When are you going to come through? And then she got the email. So I thought that was a pretty cool God story of how God just sort of orchestrates things. Uh, Joey and Juliana ended up with some tickets and he emailed me and said, maybe somebody can use this. And I normally don't do that. don't want to spam all your inboxes full of email, but thought, well, rather than let them go to waste, maybe somebody could use them. And God just speaks into our hearts. And uh, it's an amazing thing. And uh, we are this morning um, and really we're about a third of the way now into a new series of messages that we've started that we've just called Living in HD with Paul. It's a series based on Paul's letters. The idea is to fly over each of these letters at about 20,000 feet and try to bring some clarity to the major theme or themes of each of his letters. Our goal in doing this is that we might experience Paul's heart for God and for his church. But as Pastor Ken said last week, we thought this was a good idea when we first uh, thought about it. But once you get into it and realize that it's quite a difficult task at times to uh, summarize the main teaching of some of, these, some of these letters. Well, so far we've looked at uh, Romans, the book of Romans. It's really ultimately about the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ, about how we're made right with God through faith in Jesus. We discovered there that, uh, that everyone needs a Savior because everybody has sinned. And there's a cost to that sin, namely death, and ultimately Jesus paid the price for that, for that sin and saved us. Saved us by grace and through faith alone. And we looked at 1 uh, Corinthians, where we considered what it meant to build Christ's church and that it had to be built on a foundation of love, that all of the gifts uh, without love is, is really useless. And then we looked last week, Pastor Kent led us in a study of 2 Corinthians. Uh, a reminder that that Corinthian church was full of problems, it had lots of issues, and in looking at that letter, it helped us to see how Paul handled adversity. And Pastor Kent covered the themes of weakness being the source of our strength, and ultimately that suffering is a mystery, it's, it's the vehicle um, of God's power and glory. And so that brings us to the letter of Galatians, from which uh, John read just a few verses out of chapter 5. This is uh, an amazing letter, really. It's recognized or referred to as the battle cry of the Reformation, or a charter of freedom, the Magna Carta of spiritual liberty, or the Christian Declaration of Independence. And all of these references point to the major theme of Galatians being... Freedom. That's a one key word, and we'll see how Philippians uh, in a few weeks is joy, but the, the word that you want to attach to Galatians is freedom. Now, Paul's primary motivation for writing this letter to the churches in Galatia was that they, and now us, might understand and experience the freedom that they have in Jesus. You see, every person, knowingly or unknowingly, searches for true freedom. The Bible teaches that the way to freedom is through the truth, that until you come to the truth, that you are never really completely free from your search. And so Paul wrote Galatians to establish this one crucial idea: that spiritual freedom comes through the truth, and that truth is Jesus Christ. And so knowing him is knowing true freedom. A person is a slave to sin and the struggle that it causes. And so he comes to Jesus at some point, he finds the truth, and he's ultimately freed from sin. And this search for freedom is over. And so Paul says repeatedly in Galatians that Christians are free from the law of sin and the law of death. And so you could summarize kind of his twofold theme theme in this way. He's basically saying, let me show you how to stay free and let me show you how to enjoy your freedom. In many ways, Galatians is a dangerous letter because it exposes the most popular substitute for spiritual living that we have in Christianity today, legalism. You see, many Christians, many believers think that they are spiritual because of what they don't do. You know, the things they stay away from. Others think that somehow they are loved by God more because of what they do do. And Galatians shows us just how wrong that thinking is. We'll also discover a little bit the difference the Holy Spirit makes in our lives. So let me introduce Galatians to you a little bit more. I've already kind of given this away, but we always want to ask the letter, or ask the question in studying a letter, who was, who was it written to? And in the second verse of chapter two, it just simply says, "To the churches in Galatia. This is an area in Asia Minor, where modern-day Turkey is, and there's a, a map right there behind me. Paul visited some of these churches and, and cities on his first missionary journey, start right kind of center left, just on the coast there in Perga. He went up to Pisidian Antioch and over to Iconium. You can see that almost right dead center in the middle of the the screen. Uh, Just to name a few. And and then he also returned to some of these. uh, On his second journey through this area, he visited some of these same cities again. And so this is the group of churches. There's not just one specific church, but several churches in this area to which Paul writes this letter. And as you read the letter, it seems obvious that Paul was welcomed into each of these cities and and into each of these churches with great joy and kindness. But now they were wavering in their allegiance to him and to the message of the gospel that he had ultimately shared with them. You see, Paul was the first one to come and to preach the gospel to them. And they received this good news of Jesus with open arms. The problem was that after Paul left, some others came along, And essentially started to undermine Paul and what he was teaching. And started to teach what Paul calls in these opening verses a different gospel. And whenever you have the true gospel and then a different gospel, there is cause for great concern. And so he writes in verses 6 and 7, he says of chapter 1, he goes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. So just in those two sentences, he gets right to the heart of the matter. And here's his concern. He's absolutely blown away that they are so quickly leaving the gospel that he had preached to them, that it was by grace alone, through faith, and that they were now turning to a different gospel. We'll talk more about what this different gospel was. But he says, really, it's no gospel at all. And he says that some, that these were these troublemakers were coming along and throwing you into confusion and ultimately were perverting the gospel of Christ. And so after Paul had left, these others came in and started teaching this gospel. Paul gets an update on how the churches are doing. It's very concerning to him. And so he writes this letter to them to address these issues. And he writes for a couple of reasons. The first is simply to defend his apostolic authority. You see, his credibility had been undermined and his integrity had been attacked. Now, this was critical because if his authority was attacked, if his credibility could be undermined, then the message that he shared would ultimately be as well. If they could discredit the messenger, then they would ultimately discredit the message. And so in the very first verse, you get a sense of this tension. He starts by saying, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. So in the very first sentence, if to, as if to remove any doubt that there might be, he just comes right out and says this, I am an apostle. And the apostles were the ones that Jesus had set aside of, the, of all of his disciples. He set 12 aside. Who, who journeyed with him? Who he taught? Whom he then released the ministry of the church into their hands when he ascended into heaven. And ultimately, um, Paul then was kind of brought into that group as well. And so others were saying, "Well, no, he hadn't really been with Jesus. He didn't really hear from Jesus. How how can this message have been passed down if he hadn't been with Jesus?" But Paul says, "No, I, I had been. It was a special revelation." And this wasn't a man thing. This wasn't man-made. Somebody didn't come and just give me a tag of being an apostle. This was God himself who came and anointed me as an apostle. And so he spends the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2 claiming this authority because he needs to reestablish his credibility in order ultimately to defend his message. And so he writes a great deal of the first two chapters. To that issue. The second reason he wrote is to respond to this evil influence of this different gospel. You see, this was serious business because there were some Jewish Christians, they were known as Judaizers, who believed in Jesus for salvation, but they also believed that in order to be saved, a person had to obey the law. And specifically, the issue here is that they needed to be circumcised. They couldn't just be Christians without being circumcised, these Gentile Christians. And so Paul, after hearing about this false teaching, he immediately writes to them to show them that this false teaching destroys the very essence of Christianity, namely that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus alone. You see, it wasn't Jesus plus anything else. Just Jesus. Jesus alone. And the gospel that Paul had taught was that God was gracious to undeserving sinners. That by His grace alone, they were called, they were justified, or they were made right with God. They were adopted into His families as sons and daughters of God. And none of it was due to their own efforts, their own merits, or their own works. And now those that came after he left, they weren't denying that it was on the basis of God's grace alone that a person was saved, but they were adding external rules and regulations to the requirements. In other words, their message was this, hey, we bring you good news as well, Jesus saves. Oh, and by the way, You also need to do this and this and this. And if you think about it, that's not good news. That's no gospel. And that's why Paul is ticked in this letter. Because think about it. If we came and preached a gospel that said, well, you need to believe in Jesus, but then you need to do X, Y, and Z. And what if you can't do X, Y, and Z? What are you left? It's not good news. The gospel says that God was gracious to us, undeserving this free gift, out of his, motivated by His love and His grace and His mercy. And that's good news. We don't have to be on a performance treadmill trying to prove our worth to God because He loves us un. And so Paul writes to respond to this evil influence of what he calls a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all, because it's not good news. And thirdly, he writes to encourage the Christians in Galatia. Now, that may not seem obvious at first. In fact, Galatians is known as Paul's angry letter. I like that just there's a it was you read through it and there you can sense there's this this tension this frustration this anger perhaps the best known phrase in the whole letter is found in the opening verse of chapter three okay you just picture this you've received this letter you have this relationship with paul you had this thing you knew what he preached now these other guys came along now you get a letter from him, and he goes you foolish galatians You'd take notice to that, wouldn't you? And it's hard to see that as very encouraging, I know. You see, Paul is no doubt angry with those that attacked his credibility and taught that Jesus alone wasn't enough. But he's also a bit angry with the Galatians for listening to them and for falling for this false teaching. That's why he says, you know, I am astonished. In fact, I can't even believe it, that you would so quickly turn away from this. This was such good news. This should have been liberating. This should have freed you. How foolish can you be to buy into what they're teaching you? And so he sees them as fools for allowing anyone to convince them that Jesus alone wasn't enough. Now, it's interesting to note and sometimes to compare how Paul wrote one letter to one church and to another. And the absence here of any kind of word of thanksgiving in the opening verses. You read Philippians and there's this warmth and he's like, I thank God upon every remembrance of you. And, 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 you know, he's just so kind and gracious. But here he has this kind of normal greeting where he addresses you know who's writing it who he's writing it to but then he gets right to the core of this issue he jumps right into it he doesn't mess around and that in itself sends a message to us that he says this is a serious issue and will not one to be taken lightly and so this whole letter is marked by this this sternness but there is also a tenderness and perhaps maybe even a sadness as paul writes and in chapter 4 verse 12 Paul turns tender and he really starts to appeal to the Galatians. He's he's calling them back from the, the road of bondage that they were heading towards. And so ultimately then, Galatians raises and answers a very important question. How is a person made right with God? By doing the works of the law or good works? Or by simply trusting in Jesus alone, nothing else. Jesus plus nothing. And the answer, of course, is that people are made right with God by faith and not by works. But what does that mean? What does life then look like? And Paul gets to that in chapters 5 and 6. And so chapters 1 and 2, there's this personal side where he establishes credibility. Chapter 3 and 4, he really addresses the core of this doctrinal and theological issue, and he gives all sorts of arguments for that. And then in chapter 5 and 6, he becomes intensely practical. And he teaches us how to live a life of freedom. verse 1 of chapter 5, he writes, It is for freedom... That Christ has set us free. Now that seems obvious, right? It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Now that verse, that's, I think that's pretty clear and straightforward. But just let's try to picture this or imagine what he's saying by this. I, imagine a prisoner. A prisoner in jail that's maybe served a, a many, many years in prison. And all he's ever known is shackles on his legs and on his arms. And he's lived that way for years, carrying this burden around, maybe never even getting out of his cell. And somebody comes along and takes those shackles off and opens that prison gate and, and sets him free. Can you imagine the joy and the the weight that's been lifted and the excitement of now having a a whole life to enjoy and realizing, as Jesus said, I've come that they would have life and have it abundantly. And it's just overflowing. And he's thinking this is the greatest day of my entire life. Uh, There was a song I was thinking of. I, I, I wish I had played. I certainly can't sing it. Does anybody know the Christian artist Mandisa? Take the shackles off my feet so I can dance. Did you ever hear that song? I can't sing it for you, and I certainly can't dance for you, but, I mean, it, it just, it, you just listen to that song, and it's like, that's exactly it. We've been set free. This is an amazing thing. But now imagine that prisoner going, you know what? This isn't all it's cracked up to be. I liked it back there better in prison. And so you find your way back into that cell and close the door behind you. That is the picture of what Paul is trying to help us understand here. And that's why Paul encourages them by reminding them that it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. You've been set free to go and so go and enjoy your freedom. He did not set us free so that we might go back and then place ourselves in bondage again. Listen to his heart in chapter 4 a little bit. Beginning in verse 8. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God... Okay, so their past, they didn't know God. This is how he describes them. He says, You were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God listen to this, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. You see, when he first showed up in these churches and preached the gospel, and they received it by faith, they were set free. And he worked hard at that, and now he's going, now you're going back? I don't understand it. Why would you do that? Those weak and miserable principles. And if you've ever lived in your relationship with God, where you think that the more good things I do, the more acceptable I become to God, and you get on this treadmill of trying to do more and more and more, you realize exactly what he's saying here, that ultimately, those are weak and miserable principles. Jesus set us free so that we might be free. And that sounds rather obvious, but understand what was happening here. The Galatians were once burdened down with all of these rules and regulations, and Paul preaches the gospel to them, and they found freedom in Christ, but now they were returning back into this prison and slamming the cell door behind them. No, he says, because If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. John 8, verse 36. And so if we know Jesus, He sets our conscience free from the guilt of sin. He sets us free from the fear that comes from thinking that I must keep the law in order to earn God's favor. He sets us free from the fear that comes from thinking that maybe I've committed just one sin too many. He can never love me now. He sets us free from condemnation. He sets us free from from this performance-driven mentality. You see, God is far more concerned with who you are than what you do. And Paul writes, Do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And so the image is that of carrying a burden like an ox, This yoke of slavery is the burden of commandments that we cannot keep. And Paul is basically saying, you know, I've been there, I've done that, but now Jesus has set you free. So don't keep going back and putting your neck in that thing again. Nobody's going to put the handcuffs back on us. We're going to enjoy this freedom. In fact, he says we're going to stand firm in it. The verb that is used there is this verb that you would liter- you describe a tug of war. Do you ever go to picnics or some company thing or a church picnic maybe where you've had a tug of war, right? And, and what do you do in there? You're, you're, you, you dig your heels in so that you get a really firm, strong stance so that you can resist, that you can win this, this tug of war. And so Paul says, we're going to stand firm in this way. We're going to dig our heels in and we're going to hold tenaciously to this wonderful discovery of Jesus' words so that if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. That is the life of freedom. And in freedom there is hope and there's joy. And so we receive it. We embrace it. And we do everything that we can to reject the slavery. We enjoy the freedom that comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. But he cautions us. It's not just a life of freedom. There's also, quite interestingly, a life of limits. Because he says in verse 13, again, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. And so Paul simply reminds the Galatians and us that it was God's doing in their lives to bring them into this incredible experience of freedom. This is something that God did for us. However, he recognizes that in declaring this freedom, there would be those who fail to understand the implications of it. And so as a result, the the pendulum would be swinging from legalism of of man-made rules and regulations maybe all the way over to the license of man-made self-indulgence. And so he says in the second half of verse 13, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. And so Paul was reminding, or was, was sorry, he was responding to those who likely here now were alleging that the emphasis on freedom was just an introduction to, to some kind of anarchy with, with no limits and no restrictions. That kind of the message that says, you know, you're free, so anything goes. And Paul, he recognizes the danger of this, and so he immediately addresses it and makes it clear that Christian freedom is not freedom from all controls, but rather freedom from this awful slavery of having to earn the favor of God. See, if we go through life just continually thinking that what I do is going to somehow make me more acceptable to God, then, then we're going to keep trying. We're going to keep working harder. We're going to try to clean up our act a little bit. But you can see what that would be like, right? Always trying, never sure, have I done enough? The sinful nature that Paul refers to here, sometimes referred to as the flesh, is our fallen human nature. And he describes it here as something that desires what is opposite to the Spirit. You see, when someone crosses the line of faith, becomes a follower of Jesus, a Christian, the, the sinful nature no longer reigns okay it's no longer in control, but it does remain and as long as it remains, it has a, the potential then to, to to cause each of us to kind of almost be like this springboard to do all the things that are wrong rather than that which is pleasing to God and that's what he says. He says there in verse uh, seventeen right they are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. Have you ever been there? You know what you want to do, but you don't do it. Why? Because there's this battle going on. And sometimes it can be very tiring. And the point is, that we must never use our freedom that Paul has just declared as this launching pad for doing what is displeasing to God. We, we can't just then say, you know, I'm free. I can do whatever I want. First Peter, uh, Peter addresses the same issue in chapter 2 and verse 16. He says, live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as as servants of God. Do you see the difference? From being slaves to sin to being servants of God? In other words, don't do bad things and then use our freedom to justify it. Right? Like I said, well, I'm free so I can just do whatever I want. You see, that's using our freedom to indulge the sinful nature, the very thing that Paul warns us against. You see, Christian freedom is freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. And it's a subtle but important distinction. In Romans 13, verse 14, Paul writes, "'Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ,' And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. In other words, instead of using my freedom to please myself, I'm going to do what Jesus did. And what did Jesus do? He sums up the Christian life by saying this here back in Galatians 5. Do not use your freedom to indulge in the sinful nature. Rather, so instead of that, serve one another in love. You see, true love must be mutual, and so there's a, a one-another relationship here, and it cannot put its own interests first. And so what Paul is saying is that ultimately, freedom is found in loving service, not self-indulgence. You see, our freedom as Christians is, a, is really a remarkable paradox. First, Our freedom is found in captivity to Jesus, right? So we move from being slaves to sin to being servants of Christ. And that's what Jesus is saying in John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will, what, do whatever you like? No, he says, you will obey what I command. And whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And secondly... Our freedom is found in our responsibility to each other. And so Paul writes also in Romans 13.8, Let no debt remain outstanding except this continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. And so Christian freedom is service and love towards others, not selfishness. And anyone who has ever tried to live life like that knows just how hard it is. Especially because too often we try really hard to to live this Christian life in our own strength. And so Paul answers that too when he says, continuing on in verse 16, so I say, in other words, he must have been saying, how do we love our neighbor as ourselves? He goes, well, you can start by living by the Spirit. And when you live by the Spirit, he says you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. The key to living a life of liberty and limits is to live life by the Spirit. And I don't have time to speak to this more fully at all, but simply to say this, that we've all been there. And we know when there are good things that we should do, and we're kind of going, oh, I don't really want to do that. That gets me. Case in point, how many people have shoveled or pushed somebody out of their street in the last week? A few of you. I, I work from home, my window faces the front street, and you see people getting stuck on a regular basis earlier in this week. And I look out, and I'm just, I don't want to go out there again. Right, but then there's just something the Spirit of God just keep, right, and you have a choice to make. Do I respond to that gentle nudge of the Holy Spirit that says, "Nor go help them," or do I live to please the selfish part of me? And that tension, that battle, is going on in each of our lives on a continual basis. And when we live by the Spirit, or the phrase here, walk by the Spirit, and then he uses, keep in step with the Spirit. There's all of these allusions to, to walking in a, as, as a soldier in line under a commanding officer. And the Holy Spirit is our commanding officer. And so daily we have these choices to make. Do I respond to my selfish desires? The sinful nature. Or do I respond to how the Holy Spirit is prompting and nudging me to do the next thing? And when we continually try to walk, just, just put ourselves in line under the direction and guidance of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit starts to transform our lives. And I'm not going to go into the detail there. John read it for us, but he, he talks about, you know, the, sin, the, the acts of the sinful nature obvious. This is what your life's going to look like. Or... You know, contrary to that, it can look like this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's how I want my life to look. And I know for me, I've got to keep in tune Keep listening, keep walking daily by daily, moment by moment, every step that you take, listening for those gentle, quiet nudges. It's it's so active, it's it's a daily thing. We keep in step with the Spirit. Listening for His guidance, His leading, and then responding in obedience. And that will affect our decisions and our choices all day long. Paul lays it out. You can choose to live life like this by indulging the sinful nature, or you can choose to live life.